Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 271, recorded October 19th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 103. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. If you're in tech support, clients rely on you for fast and reliable service. Help them the fast and easy way with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, visit gotoassist.com slash security. And by Astaro Corp, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. Contact them at astaro.com or call 877-4-ASTARO for a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway in your business. And by Ford and voice-activated sync. Featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, your privacy online, protecting you from the bad guys that inhabit the Internet. Here he is, the star, our security guru, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Good morning, hey, Leo. Steve. Great to be with you again, as always. Good to see you. We got a Q&A episode today, I think. We do. Number 103. And uh, lots of, we no updates, but lots of news um, and some great questions. Lots of follow-up, actually, from things that have been on our listeners' minds sort of communally uh, in the last couple of weeks. So uh, we'll address those and have a nice conversation. This is, uh, you can always ask a question of Steve. People want to know sometimes, why don't you take questions from the chat room and stuff? And, I'll, and I'll, some of our other shows do, but I'll tell you, I'll, I'll speak for Steve because I know why. Because Steve likes to prepare his answer. He likes to make sure he's got it right. He's an engineer. And he doesn't like to do what I do and what some of other hosts do, which is answer off the cuff. Well, <laughs> but you were doing example, it before the show today, which I was surprised. Well, I, I mean, I, I can, but, you know, there are questions like we have, we have several today where I had to go do some research for right. it. And so in order to provide a useful, detailed answer, you know, which I love to do because, I mean, I'm learning too or I'm finding out things. Mm-hmm. I learned about what Logitech is doing in detail for the encryption of their keyboards, which, you know, I just wouldn't be able to answer on the fly, but we're going to, I'm going to explain exactly how it works because now I know everything about it. Right. So well, yeah, I, I think mean, this I, is of all, all the shows we do, it's the most technical show. And so rightly so uh, you, you want to give technically complete and accurate answers. And sometimes well, that does take a little prep. Yeah. And look, you know, someone could have said, well, what about LastPass? And in fact, you know, I put off a LastPass episode until I could, you know, lay out a huge amount of time. I, I've invested more in learning LastPass than I've done, you know, for a long time for the podcast. But I was able, as a consequence, to really deliver a thorough review of exactly how it works, what the scripts do, blah, blah, blah. I mean, so, you know, there's a ton of time 
I'm spending behind the scenes that I, I as you say, I hope it shows in the in the content. Absolutely. Very valuable. Well, let's get to, to the content in just a second. Your questions, lots of news. Maybe before we do, real quickly, I'd like to mention our friends at Citrix because uh, they're sponsoring the show. I want to make sure that they they get heard. They uh, do that great program for people who are in support, IT folks, IT types. It's called Go to Assist Express. I've used it since the screensavers days when we used an early version of it to solve people's problems on TV. Now, it's uh, really, it's the choice for people who are solving computer problems remotely. If you're a software support person, if you're an IT person, maybe you just have family and friends who keep saying, help me, help me, help me. Go to Assist Express. Saves you that drive to uh, the friend's house. Saves you that walk down the hall. Allows you to do eight sessions at once, unattended sessions too. And you know, your support clients don't have to have it installed ahead of time. They don't even have to know you're going to use it. You just give them a link. Or, and, or even tell them, uh, visit gotoassist.com. Here's the uh, ID. They enter it, and now you're in. It takes them 30 seconds to get that software on their system. And from then on, you can easily fight fires, fix problems, even drag and drop fixes from your computer to theirs. Even show them your computer. Say, this is how it's supposed to look. What's yours look like? <laughs> I love GoToAssist Express. Uh, it's really useful. They do have day passes for those of you who don't do this all the time. But the, uh, the monthly uh, flat rate is really the best deal. But look, try it free for the next 30 days. Go to go to assist.com slash security. G-O-T-O assist.com slash security. Uh, and try it free. Unlimited free usage for the next 30 days. And then decide if this is what you need to make yourself a support hero. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank them for their support of security now. So you said there's lots of news. Lots of news. We, uh, after a couple of weeks of rock'em, sock'em updates... Uh, the industry seems to have gotten that out of its system for now. Um, so nothing happened over on the update side. Nothing at all um, of any particular note. Um, however, Microsoft, uh, the senior program manager, uh, Holly Stewart, made a posting on Microsoft security blog saying, I think the title was, Have You Checked the Java um, what what uh, they found in looking at the numbers, and we'll be talking about their numbers here uh, a little bit later in news, because their their big um, half yearly security intelligence report is now out for the first six months of 2010. Um, in looking at the numbers, they discovered a somewhat surprising leap in the amount of at- exploits and attacks against java now not javascript which of course is my favorite whipping boy on this podcast (laughs) forever um but the you know the the sun slash now oracle java which is a very nice late model um advanced language which has a a runtime engine which needs to be installed in a machine in order for it to operate it doesn't produce native code, like not, you know, Intel instructions, but rather the Java language compiles to its own bytecode, which is then interpreted by this interpreter. Um, And of course, as with anything really complicated um, and and convoluted to some degree, there are problems which uh, surface over time with um, the details of the code. Um, paraphrasing a little bit from Sans' security newsletter about this, 
Uh, Sands wrote, many of these vulnerabilities are created by flaws in the low-level implementation of the Java runtime environment, the so-called JRE. Although Java is intended to be type safe, meaning that it's intended to sort of protect you from these sorts of things. I mean, and some care was given to that. Low-level code sometimes writes user-defined strings into buffers, giving an attacker the opportunity to overwrite return addresses and execute their own code. Vulnerabilities like these allow Java applets, which start without user interaction when a target navigates to a malicious site to execute the permissions of the Java process running them. Normally, applets run with restricted privileges. So the point is that this is it's a variation on the same problem we have with Java scripting, but the, the details are different. You go to a site which is using Java as opposed to JavaScript, it's, it is still giving you an applet, a so-called Java applet, which then runs under the supervision of this runtime environment. The concept is that that encapsulation created by the runtime environment would give you protection, and it certainly gives you a lot of protection, but there's little mistakes in it. Well, our friend Brian Krebs who wrote for, the, who did the security column for the Washington Post for so long, has been following this. And he noted recently that Java exploits, exactly what Microsoft's blog posting is talking about, now exceed Adobe-related exploits. Wow. As an attacker's preferred method of breaking into PCs. And Microsoft said that they had gone from Hundreds of thousands per quarter, that is in terms of, of uh, exploits against vulnerabilities, to millions. And we're talking, when you look at the exact numbers, more than 6 million. So a real ramp That's up. not individual exploits. That, that's uh, attacked PCs. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, 6 million exploits yes. would scare yes. the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, well, we just unplug yeah. our machines at that point. <laughs> yeah, they'd no be, kidding. They'd be Swiss cheese. Um and Brian believes, Brian Krebs believes, he understands what the difference is. What's happened is that Java has gotten onto the radar of those who make the exploit kits. Ah. And so Java exploits have been moved into the exploit packs, which makes them, you know, like turnkey easy for malware authors to use. But here's the so, thing that baffles me. Java was always pitched as secure because it has sandboxing and you know we we had malicious applets but they never could do very much are these real exploits like yes. root exploits yes yes and, and that's the point is that is that it was pitched as secure as i said this invite this runtime environment provides some containment but if there's mistakes right then you lose containment and and as we know mistakes happen so there are some there are some ways that it is possible for a user provided string to be loaded into an unmanaged buffer which can cause a buffer overrun and wow. we know that once that happens ball bets are off. So so the problem is there are mistakes. Now remember last mistakes week mistakes in the JVM. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
The, the, yes, there are there are mistakes in the containment. Right. And last week, Oracle, what was it, twenty nine security fixes in Java when they went to version six update number twenty one or no twenty two. I think we're at now. So, so here's the bottom line: is um, you can look at in your add remove programs for, for Windows at least. Java will be there if it's installed. You, it will tell you what version it is. You want to make sure you're at update 22. The question is, do you need it? I don't have it installed on my main, my main workstation here that I'm sitting in front of that I use day and night for everything. Yeah. There are very um, few things nowadays that, that use Java. It used to be much more uh, omnipresent. Yes. And so, so the, the danger is that it's, it's sort of sitting there really not being necessary yet still representing an attack vector for for people's machines if you don't know that you need it i would just say remove it it just you know you can use add remove programs in windows and just click on remove and it's gone and this this ramping up exploit vector um is just eliminated from your system now in fairness the the attacks that are being made currently that is the 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 known vulnerabilities that are being exploited have all been patched so patching well, as of last week so um so oracle is trying to stay current and keep these things patched the bad guys are leveraging unpatched versions of java to get into people's systems for drive-by exploits. And we'll be talking about drive-bys here in a, in a few minutes extensively. So it is the case that if you, if you know you need it, you can increase its rate of checking for updates. By default, it only looks for updates once a month on the 14th of the month. You can change that to weekly or daily if you like. So there is a, a Java updater which is configurable, and um, and Brian Krebs suggests you know if you do need it, then there's really no there's very little overhead with it checking more often, um, and and I would say that makes sense. Just have it check more often. So okay, good. So it does auto update. Uh, yes, it, it, and it's part of Windows update. Well, and Brian's also. Brian, oh no, Java's independent from Windows. There, there uh, isn't a Java update in Windows update. No, uh, um, you know Microsoft sort of washed their hands of that, and you know there was a big battle. Remember back in the early days, Microsoft right. had their own. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. And Sun said, no, no, no. Well, we're gonna, we're unhappy so you with you. You have to make sure the Java updater itself does the job. Yes, and Brian noted something that I had too, which is well, unfortunately, we always note with a lot of these updaters. Sometimes it just sort of doesn't. You know, there is a new one around, and for whatever right. reason, it just didn't get the message somehow. So uh, you want to make sure you can look at add remove programs, make sure you're at 22, up, uh, version 6, update 22. Um, if not, then manually update. You can go to, to, go to um, Oracle's Sun site and an update to update 22, which you definitely want to do, especially with this thing becoming as prevalent as it has. Now, I was just talking about mistakes in containment. Uh, Adobe Reader, the next version, apparently Reader 10, 
um, I'm seeing it referred to as Reader X. I'm, I won't I won't recall it. I won't call it Reader X oh, as well, I was calling yeah. it OS X. Yeah. In the case of my, of, I wish of, they'd uh, just call it Ten. Yeah, come on. So we're I'm not Romans for crying out loud. <laughs> we're gonna well because it's nine right now. It's not you know V I I I. So um, fancy stupidity. Or I guess it would be I X, wouldn't it? That's yeah. just ambiguity. That's annoying. Yeah. So, so the big news, drum roll, please. <laughs> it's um, that Adobe's management have said that next month, coming in November. Reader will get sandboxing. Yay! And it'll be on by default. Huh. And they're saying, well, I mean, thank goodness. And they're saying initially only write calls will be sandboxed. Reads will come later. Hmm. Now, I say, well, this is all good because more is better. But um, mark my words, here we are, middle of October... Uh, it won't matter, right? Um, why not? Why, why isn't that enough? It, well, it's 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 better because it means that Adobe is focusing a lot of attention and resources on this. If they're talking about it happening next month, it's something they've been working on for quite a while because it's not an easy thing to do to go in and retrofit containment where there hasn't been containment. Right. The problem is it won't be perfect. Right. It, they'll they'll make mistakes, just as the Java runtime engine was designed from the beginning to be a contained environment, and and it isn't. It's got mistakes in its flaws in its containment, right. which are now being exploited like crazy. So, you know, the Adobe's got problems with the quality of their code. the The policy that they're implementing of sandboxing is a good thing. It represents progress. It doesn't mean this is going to get solved. Yeah. So, you know, with any luck, we'll be talking about Adobe less often. Maybe the exploits will be less bad. But, you know, less we, 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 we couldn't be talking about them any more often than we are. Adobe so, Acrobat, less insecure. Less horrible than it used to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, Mike, uh, speaking of... The first half of 2010, Microsoft's Security Intelligence Report is out uh, with a bunch of interesting numbers, which are always sort of fun to actually see. Because, you know, we always, you know, use superlatives here. Um, it's nice to have some actual numbers. The most secure in the history of um, this week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Microsoft, with uh, their combination of Microsoft, the software removal removal tool, MSRT, and the Microsoft Security Essentials, MSE, which um, I'm now using on my various Windows oh, interesting. Oh. Very happily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's my anti-malware. You know, I never was a third-party malware uh, user. You've never, and, yeah, we've never used any viruses, right? I mean, it nope. wasn't, wasn't merely third-party. You just didn't use them. Didn't use them at all. Yeah. But now that it's sort of there with Windows and Microsoft's going to do it, it's like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'm happy to have it. And it's what I'm recommending to other people, so I figure I should be using what I'm recommending, right. much as I'm using LastPass, for example. Right. So, so between those two tools, Microsoft has data from 450 million PCs that are running those things worldwide. Wow. In the during the first half of 2010, nearly 1.9 million 
PCs were infected some multiple times. In fact, many multiple times. Um, of all of the machines out there, the U.S. is number one in really? inf- infections. Huh. Um, there were their their tools did two point one six million bot cleanings, which is five point two per thousand runs of the MSRT. So, so the Microsoft Software Removal Tool, which we talked about, in fact, last week I was even saying to people, just, you know, go to the start menu and just run it. Type MRT, no S, MRT, that pops it up and you can just do, do a manual deep scan of your system. Microsoft runs it monthly after it updates itself with each month of, of security updates. For every thousand runs of that MSRT, they find and remove 5.2. I don't know how you can have 0.2. I guess it's like, you know. Well, there's a million runs, and so they got 5.3 kids or, or something. Yeah. yeah. 5.2 uh, bot cleanings in the U.S. That's Brazil, not such a high rate. That's less than 1%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, point, well, it's what, 0.52%. Yeah. So 0.5%. Two percent. That's fairly low. One half of one percent. That's not so bad. But Leo, I mean, you know, <laughs> bots are not good. Now, and by the way, this is just its kind of uh, quick scan that it does. Uh, uh, there is a more thorough scan that it doesn't do automatically. Correct. So yes, it's doing the the quickie one, and it's during those quickie ones that it's finding these. Yeah. Uh, although our listeners who are doing it deeply, um, they they probably get some credit for doing that too. Although they're hopefully not finding you know bots on their machine. So, Brazil, whereas our, uh, the U.S. machines experienced 2.16 million bot cleanings in the first half of 2010, Brazil is in, number, is in the second place with 511,000. And also, interestingly, the same number of cleanings per, per thousand MSRTs, also exactly 5.2 cleanings of bots per thousand runs of the MSRT. Korea is in number four place, uh, and it's distinctive because it's got substantially more bots per thousand runs. It's it's the highest of any region, 14.6 cleanings per thousand runs of the MSRT. Um, and so Microsoft reports that overall, the infection rate of machines they're seeing is 1.4%. So that is a high number i mean 1.4 percent that's that's a lot of machines you know um 14 machines out of every thousand have stuff on them now looking at demographics a bit um in terms of drive-by download pages drive-by downloads of course mean that you visit a website and it infects you it does something to you running javascript typically um, through whatever vector is available, JavaScript or Java, um, so, you know, something executable, maybe an ActiveX control that gets downloaded. It could be anything. So um, what they're seeing is that in general, on the net, three out of every 10,000 pages is a drive-by download. So three out of every 10,000 oh, pages. That's a lot. That's a lot when you consider all the good pages out there. Yeah. 
Yeah, three out of every 10,000. And they're saying that um, out of every 1,000 search results pages that a search engine pulls up, two of those 1,000 search result pages will contain links to sites with drive-by downloads. So two out of every 1,000 searches results in a page containing malicious sites so it's worse if you if you're searching i don't understand it's oh it's it's they're saying that three out of every ten thousand web pages in general in general has it it will infect you yeah but in terms of search results which is different why would that turn up more uh bad things which search results why would search because they've got so many links on one page so oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the so thing you, that... Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I thought, is there some magic thing happening? Well, maybe yes. they're targeting certain common searches. It actually maybe. I mean, how many links are there? 15? They may yeah. be actually targeting common searches, which would raise the... It, and that would make sense that the they would rate. try to do that. Because, yeah. of course, that's the way people go to web pages now, is they, they do a search, right. which then they, and they click on links. So, not surprisingly... In terms of top-level domains, the .cn domain, the China domain, has the most infected sites by domain name. And get this, Leo, 5.8%. One in 20. One in more. (laughs) Wow. Yes. Now, uh, how do you get a .cn? Do you have to go through the Chinese registrar? I guess you do. Exactly. So, so they're so they're these top- are Chinese sites. These are not uh, bad bad guys in Poland pretending to be Chinese. Well, the, well, all we know is that their their URLs end in .cn. So they are the Chinese. Yeah, I wonder. Re- registrar. Like, to, to get a .ca, you have to verify verify that you're doing business in Canada or Canadian. And okay. I would bet you the Chinese registrar is at least as restrictive as the Canadian registrar. I would imagine that's so, the case. And then, so now you have to wonder, well, how many of these are rogue sites and how many of them are government sites? Well, and remember, we have talked in the past that China's not happy about the state of affairs yeah. and that they're, they've begun to make some, some noise about checking people's credentials more. It had tr- traditionally right. been incredibly easy to just register whatever you wanted to dot cn and now they're saying ah we want to make we you know we want to see you we want to we want to see it's, you know it's who you are and check your identity conceivable that more chinese machines are hacked because if you hack into a web it's very it's very frequent at least it has been in my experience that sites that have malware on them aren't always the owner isn't always the guy putting the malware on there they 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 found a security hole in the server and then they put malware on all the sites and it maybe yes. that's what's going on. Well, we know that, for example, you know, um, uh, Network Solutions has had huge problems with that recently, where you know pe- there was a mistake, and because the Network Solutions is, has a big web hosting right. service, and you know, hu- a huge number of their sites were being infected with malware through some exploits that, that, that people use. So the, all of those would count as you know infected domains. Right. So yes, so five point eight percent. That's appalling. Of, that's terrible. Of .cn domains have drive-by download pages. Um, second and third place are tied .ru, Russia, mm-hmm. and .de, Germany. Mm. Now that's are, a surprise. Are both tied. Yeah, they, you wouldn't expect Germany to be up there so yeah. high. Um, and they're both tied at 2.8% of their domains, but still 
That's still you know, high. Big right. number. Yeah. yeah. And interestingly, the UK, the dot UK top level domain is in the fourth place at 1.7%. Hmm. So um, overall, when you stand back and and look at the trends from um, 08, so where things were two years ago, the number of security breaches, that is breaches reported by companies of 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 people getting into their networks and stealing credit card information, stealing database data and so forth. That's the good news is that's been on a continual downward trend. And it's about half, frankly, of where it was two years ago. So there's really been progress made. Um, You know, we've got laws now that require this to be reported. So you'd almost expect to see some inflation of those of, of those numbers rather than deflation because we're you know we're being much more strict about requiring companies to acknowledge when information gets away from them but the good news is i, I think it's probably because it has been you know they, they have to report it um and and the news agencies are covering breaches that we're we are seeing that decrease so people are tightening up their networks. They're being better about educating their users. They're, they're training their own um, IT security people more thoroughly. So overall, you know, for the last couple of years, a downward trend. Um, and so we're seeing about half the breaches that we were before. <laughs> um, and also vulnerability counts have been falling since actually now in in this case Microsoft's tracking back since the second half of 06 so over the last 4 years in general we're seeing the counts coming down in terms of number of vulnerabilities per uh half year which is how Microsoft aggregates these that is generally coming down um over time not you know not dramatically but trending that way and the top threats, won't be a surprise to anybody listening to this podcast, are Trojans and Worms. Um, the top of the Trojans and Worm threats are, interestingly, gaming password stealers. There's two in particular, a Win32 TATERF, T-A-T-E-R-F, Trojan, and a Win32 FRETHOG, F-R-E-T-H-O-D, I guess it's FRETHOG, F-R-E-T-H-O-G, <laughs> Um, those two are at the top. Those are the two most commonly detected malware families, and they focus on stealing gaming passwords and sending you know online gaming passwords back to their their Trojan and, and when worm masters. And the number one way that uh, that malware gets money from people, and this also we've talked about many times, is so-called scareware. The, it's the stuff that pops up on your machine. Typically, you know, you, you visit some website with scripting enabled. It takes advantage of a, of a, of a scripting opportunity or, or just, you know, using scripting on that site to pop up Windows, which often, can, you know, is done with the, the script's permission, even with the browser's permission, um, just to pop up a notice and says, oh, we've just detected malware on your machine. Um, you know, go here, click this in order to... Um, uh, get taken to a site and we'll tell you how you can clean things up. Uh, doing that, of course, typically 
actually is the event that installs something bad on your machine. Up until that point, all you had was a scary notice. Then uh, ransomware uh, takes over and requires that you give them some money in order to do something. So uh, anyway, that kind of that kind of scareware is the most common method that bad guys um, get money out of victims is basically people say, I mean, they believe all that right. and they enter their credit card information yeah. and, you know, God help them. It's a protection racket without any protection. And, <laughs> exactly. And lastly, um, I mentioned a week or two ago that I had seen the blurb go by, but I hadn't been able to backtrack it afterwards about the, the ongoing drama of the laptop spying on students story. Remember I said that I was sure I'd seen that someone had decided that there was no criminal intent. And so I, I, the, the news is finally all in. Uh, what happened was that a settlement was reached over on the civil side because there's, there, there's, you know, the federal suit and the, you know, federal um, uh, felony stuff and criminal or, 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 or civil complaint side. So what happened was the federal authorities announced that they would not prosecute the administrators. And we're, we're, we're talking about the lower Marion County, Pennsylvania School District, which was caught sending out laptops with webcam spyware installed, ostensibly to allow the laptops to be to be um, recaptured or reclaimed if, if the students lost them. But what was found was that people within that school district were turning on the, the webcams of non-stolen, non-misplaced, not lost laptops and basically spying on the kids. So lawsuits were filed by the parents of the, of the kids that had been spied on. So the federal authorities... Um, there's a, da- a Zane David Memger, who's the United States uh, attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, said that that they found no criminal intent in the alleged surveillance. So that moved the the um, the essentially the feds off the table, but that still left the civil suit and the need for a civil settlement. Now, get this, Leo. The school district has agreed to pay a total of $610,000 to make this go away, to settle the civil side. Of the $610,000, the attorneys get $425,000. Well, that's normal, though. I guess so. Um, And the students get the remaining $185,000. Yeah. So um, so this would have been the plaintiff attorneys who were bringing the suit. I'm sure the parents, you know, went to some attorneys and said, hey, we, we really don't have any money to pay you whatever it's going to cost to go sue the, the, the district. So, you know, what'll it, you know, how do you want to arrange this? The attorney said, well, it looks like you've got a case. We'll take it on contingency. And uh, and take a percentage of you know a heavy percentage looks like two thirds of whatever it is uh, we're able to get for you and the parents at that point said fine you know we accept that and to defend itself 
from from the plaintiffs. The school district's insurer, a company called Graphics Arts, has agreed to pay the defense attorneys $1.2 million. I'm so confused. I thought they... Oh, the the who got the money then? I thought attorneys so, got money. Oh, yeah. All the attorneys made out pretty well yeah. on this. <laughs> so... So the school districts, the school district is insured against this. So yeah. they've got some sort of, you know, yeah. I don't know. No, that's normal. Uh, An umbrella insurance. I have insurance. If you sued me, no, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but no, that's <laughs> normal. You'd have, you. you'd have, you'd have, Louis love you. No one's going to sue you. You'd have liability, or you know, you'd have defensive yeah. insurance. So, any business so, would. exactly. So you know, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a condo association. Our, our association has insurance because some homeowners went off the deep end right. a few years it's ago. Normal. And we're pissed you off. You gotta have so, an umbrella liability policy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure even a school district would. Yes, they do, and I and I imagine their rates have gone up recently. Oh yeah. <laughs> so their insurer agreed to pay 1.2 million for the school's defense oh, cost. I get it. The defense cost more than the 425 thousand dollars they got from the settlement. Yes. So the got whole a, it cost 1.625 million. Jeez, yeah. Louise. Yeah. You know though. Okay, fine. This is nothing new. We've seen this before. It still bugs me a little bit that they that the court found there was no intent, because I mean we didn't see the evidence, but uh, but the the anecdotal evidence I heard sure sounded like there was intent. Some it, of the quotes from the IT wrong. people. Yes, um, there were four hundred photos taken. Yeah. of one the the one student that one that boy. Was, yeah, yeah, the one boy who was who was who was you know. Uh, confronted by the the school officials, saying that he was popping pills, and it turned out it was Ike and Zyke or Ike and Mike. It was yeah, it was candy. Uh, yeah, Ike and, and, and the Mike. thing is, those the camera was supposed to be if the if the laptop was reported stolen. So it seems to me there's intent. If they're taking pictures of students and they and they and they haul the student in, I think that's criminal intent. I, I'm well, sorry. And not just one, multiple students also. And and then there was now, and again, maybe that maybe this wasn't entered into evidence, but there were the, was a transcript of comments from uh, on the web. One of the IT people said it's really fun watching the kids. Oh, so I'm I, not criminal. I guess it's not criminal. It's offensive. Yeah. Well, wow. the good news is this: there's been enough money rolling around in this, and enough headlines and press that. I mean, what we would want is this never to happen again anywhere. And you have to imagine that any schools that are using, I mean, this was commercial software. So you can imagine that the, that the lower Marion County Peninsula School District not are not the only the ones. Only <laughs> no, ones. No. Yes. Yeah. Not the only ones. So, and, you know, the good news is I would I would imagine this will not happen again. It, so, there's no excuse so there, to happen. Just again. to make it clear, there was a civil lawsuit. That's where the settlement was. The feds declined to criminally prosecute because Correct. they couldn't find an evidence of criminal intent. Correct. Or more, you know, it's it's very hard to prosecute government agencies. It's certainly hard to sue them. They may have decided that even though there was some evidence, there wasn't sufficient evidence. Something like that. That happens all the time. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, you're right. Or the maybe bo- the ta- the evidence was tainted. I yeah, mean, exactly. you know, you know, who knows what was going yeah. on. It's hearsay. So. You point it, put it on the web. It's not real. Anyway, yeah. I, I think that I think the good news is you're exactly right. This ain't going to happen again. And you know, my my kids' school hand out laptops, uh, uh, Mac Mac MacBooks with cameras on them. And you better you better believe that immediately the the question was raised. Well, is there any software on there that could monitor it? 
Yeah, and the first thing you and want to do, we've talked about this before, laptops really need to start installing Shutters. A, a physical shutter, yep. a, a, a little slider. Yep. I know that, um, I, I noted that there's, there's a, um, laws which require sufficiently high-powered lasers to have a mechanical shutter. Actually, they require three things. If your laser is above a certain number of milliwatts in its brightness, it has to have a a lock and key that is a, mm-hmm. a, a an electrical key. Mm-hmm. It has to have a mechanical shutter which physically blocks the aperture of the laser. And when you turn it on, there has to be a delay of several seconds between the time you press the on switch and the beam actually begins. Hmm. So there's like, you know, three requirements for a sufficiently high-powered laser. I, I know because I own one. And, uh, and I, I was curious about all of that rigmarole. And sure enough, so you can imagine... <laughs> that out of curiosity? <laughs> You're not building a new... No, no, no. No, no. Not... No animals which are co- be... which, which color is it? You got a, did you get a green one or... Yeah, it's really they're really, really cool. Yeah, Waz had a green one uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, this thing will pop balloons, so Ooh. it's you know you want to be where careful. Do you, where do you shop for something like that? <laughs> I don't remember where now, but you know, on the net, on the net, is my standard. So it's response. legal, but you have to have these restrictions. It's, it's, it's like, like a gun legal, lock, and you need certainly you need to use it responsibly because I mean, if it'll pop a balloon, it'll it'll burn your retina too. So you don't want this is not a Jeez. toy to, to mess around with. Holy cow! Yeah, and I, you know, I'm close to the Orange County Airport too, so I can't even no, aim it out in the sky no, or anything. You shouldn't, or, rightly I don't so. have satellites zooming in on me. Yeah. I'm sure. Oh, so, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Did you get the one watt laser? It's uh, it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty bright, it's pretty good. <laughs> so, on that note, we oh, have a uh, a nice spinright testimonial. Last time Greg was in the uh, was uh, the subject of compliments, and I had something about Sue this time that I thought I would share um, from a, a David Spingener. He spelled his name phonetically for me. It's S P E I G N E R Spingener. Um, he wrote and he said. Actually, he wrote to Sue saying, thanks for your assistance in completing my spinrite order. It's churning away and will not be ready for a while. Would you please forward this to Mr. Gibson? So he sent, dear Mr. Gibson, and, you know, and then he put parents Steve. He was like, yes, uh, David, we're on a first name basis. It's quite fine. He says, I appreciate all your great efforts on security and windows and Internet vulnerabilities over the past years. I've used a lot of your freeware and tools, such as Shields Up, Opt Out, and many others. I just recently used Securable. Actually, Securable is our number one freeware right really? now. Really? What's, what's that one do? Uh, people are using it to see what capabilities their, their chips have for uh, going to 64-bit windows. Because it's just super secure and lightweight. And it shows you um, if, if your BIOS has uh, um, virtualization locked on or off. Um, whether you've got 32-bit or 64-bit identifies your chip by name, like what type of chip it is. And, uh, yeah, people are, you know, getting a lot of use. And, it's, it's you know, it's the, the news of it has passed around the Internet. It's like, oh, just go get Securable. You know, it, you don't have to install it. You just run it like all of my stuff. And it uh, tells you good things about your processor. So people are using it a lot for that. Anyway, he says, thanks for all your great work and expertise. I also very much enjoy Security Now with yourself and Leo Laporte. Now my spin right testimonial. 
I just got off the phone with your helpful, knowledgeable, and nice sales slash customer service lady. And that would be Sue. He said, today, I had my spin right moment. A major catastrophic hard drive failure caused by power outages and surges from a fast-moving lightning storm system here in the east. 70-mile-per-hour winds from heavy thunderstorms, and the surge protector did not work. Now, That's not wonder. unusual. Lightning, I mean, well, imagine how many volts are coming through a lightning storm. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, that'll jump over anything. He says the drive was caught in an endless loop, and I knew there were disk errors from using other lame third-party utilities. He says three different ones. My OS files were there but my efforts to repair did not work. One tool said I had, quote, disk errors, unquote, and the restore points in XP Pro, of course, would not work. The drive controller chip was possibly fried as well, and my drive seemed toasted as well. Of course, I had an image that was about three weeks old, but the drive had the image on it in a different partition, and both were now unreadable. So, I purchased Spinrite 6 after hearing about it frequently on the Security Now podcast. After figuring it was my only option, as the malfunctioning disk could not be restored from my saved image or backup, and the reinstallation was also inaccessible, and I needed to get it working again so I could image or do a repair installation of the OS. I used your well-designed program to create a bootable Spinrite disk. I started it up, and after follow, oh, after following the easy-to-follow instructions and waited. Well, 14 hours later, on a 320-gig drive, there were 12 recovered sectors. And I was then able to boot and have the disk detected in another machine as my motherboard was RMA'd to Intel. So it really did fry things yeah. on his machine. Yeah. And that'll happen. He said, I did a repair installation, and the machine is back to normal with no files lost. It boots fine, and Spinrite saved the day. It was well worth the cost and time saved, easy to use, and after nearly 20 years of making systems, this was the first time I needed to use it. But I know it will not be the last. Thanks for a great and easy-to-use product, David G. Spininger, Spidener. That's what's yeah. neat about Spinrite. Is, yeah, you buy it, but uh, and you have it, and you Forever. will absolutely use it again. Forever. Yeah. Yep. It's just it's just always going to be there. Uh, before we go to our questions, we have got eight great ones, eight great questions in that little bitty PDF. But before we do that, I want to talk about our friends. You know, when you listen to this show, you should get a chill down your spine, <laughs> especially if you're in corporate IT. At all the threats and beasties out there, and you probably uh, have already decided that uh, you need some sort of protection. A firewall alone, though, is not enough. You need a UTM, a Unified Threat Management Box, and there are a number of manufacturers, but there's nobody better. There's nobody better known. There's nobody who does a better job than Astaro. The Astaro Security Gateway. It's best in class, both commercial and non-commercial. There's a lot of open source software on here to protect you and provide a huge amount of con convenience as well as security. So what do you get? Of course, you get a stateful inspection, industrial strength, buzzword compliant firewall. That's that's obvious. But you also get intrusion detection. You get, uh, uh, I think, three antiviruses. There's two for email and one for the web. So you know those 5% of Chinese websites that uh, are infected? 
stopped cold by Astaro. Uh, you can even, because it's got very uh, advanced content filtering, say nobody can go to .cn anywhere within the enterprise. I think that, that would be what I would turn on. Um, you can uh, control instant messaging, peer-to-peer, all of that stuff. But then there's some other great convenience features. For instance, uh, email encryption and signing transparently. Your users may not even know that that's happening using stand industry standards like OpenPGP or SMIME. Uh, you could define user groups or individual users with their own signatures, uh, their own encryption, centralized encryption and decryption, centralized signing and verification. I mean, all of this is fantastic. And uh, 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 by the way, if you want a free home user license, you can also do this. Now, so here's the deal. If you're in a business, get a free demo unit right now by calling 877, the number four, Astaro. It's if, if you're in the U.S., 1-877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. Astaro is global. So you can also go to the website and get a demo unit in your country at Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. And uh, there's also uh, the, uh, the uh, it's open. So you can get it for non-commercial purposes and put it on your own computer. There's a VMware appliance if you want, or just go to astaro.com slash security now. By the way, this is the only unified threat management vendor to be certified as VMware ready. Uh, if, if you're using virtualization, that's going to be very important to you. It allows organizations which have standardized on virtual solutions to secure their network the way you want to. Uh, the virtual appliance can be installed on any system running a VMware player, VMware workstation, VMware server, or ESX server. So that's really nice. I, I love that. And that player is also available for free uh, to non-commercial users. You can get the appliance. You even get the Astaro up to date for free. They used to, I think they, it used to be $80 for non-commercial users in, or 80 euros, and now it's free. Um, I, I just think Astaro is just a great company with great products. Oh, I forgot to mention the VPN. Um, so that's transparent. They use SSL VPN using IPsec or L2TP over IPsec or PPTP tunneling. SSL VPN means it's very easy for you to implement it, to roll it out. It's the only, again, the only UTM on the market with this kind of VPN and remote solo, uh, access uh, support. Active-active clustering means you can grow to as many as 10 ASGs as you grow without any additional load balancing. I, mean, I can go on and on. The best thing to do, really try this, Again, one eight seven seven the number four Astaro. What a great solution this is! Eight seven seven the number four Astaro, or visit astaro.com. We thank Astaro, our first sponsor on the Twit Network, and still with us and still going strong. We really love them, so thank you, Astaro, for uh, your support for Security Now and Twit. Steve, I am ready. If you are, absolutely. We got some questions for you, Steve. Uh, starting with. Vagard or Vegard or Wegard in Norway. Wondering about the security of Bluetooth keyboards. We we talked last time about uh, wireless keyboards in general. He says, Steve, what about the security on Apple's Bluetooth keyboard? This may be a, this is a very widely used keyboard now because it works with the iPad. I I've used it. Uh, is any, isn't anything Bluetooth more secure than that simple eight bit XOR that you were talking about with uh, some of the other RF keyboards? Yeah, I wanted to quickly calm everyone's nerves over the the issue of of keyboard security uh, we have another question later on uh, about um, logitech wireless keyboards that i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. in the show mm -hmm. um but yes anything bluetooth is well okay <laughs> okay anything bluetooth is way more secure than a simple 8-bit xor if for no other reason than 
almost nothing could be less secure than, <laughs> than an 8-bit XOR. Than an 8-bit XOR. <laughs> I mean, that's... It's not saying much, in other words. <laughs> well, exactly. But so, it does have the pairing and the authorization. I mean, it has well, some security model in it. Oh, Bluetooth is good security, very good security. And yeah. in fact, one of my it's on my short list of, of future topics because oh, a number of people have asked over over the years... And I and and so we're going to absolutely do an entire Security Now podcast on the technology of Bluetooth security, since Bluetooth is is getting increasing use now all the time. I also have one of those uh, Bluetooth wireless keyboards. I it's great with the iPad; it just works beautifully, and I like the keyboard very much. Well, and it's so, beautiful. It's small. It's uh, yeah. It's very elegant. Yeah, I mean, so it just makes it it pairs beautifully, um, and there is absolutely no no problem with using a Bluetooth keyboard from a security standpoint. So I did want to let people know it's not it's not certainly the case that anything wireless is a problem. It's just those that first generation sort of cheesy, very inexpensive um, wireless keyboard was found to be you know really insecure because I mean <laughs> you know literally zero encryption, just flipping some bits. Uh, that were always flipped the same way, so very uninspired. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know we hear about Bluetooth snarfing and stuff. There are ways to hack Bluetooth. Yes, in fact, I, I remember Leo that we discussed in general. We discussed the the problem of of leaving Bluetooth in discoverable mode. We we uh, we did a segment on your um, screensavers show up in oh, Canada yeah. once, yeah, yeah. Or, or call for help, I guess it was, mm-hmm. and uh, and just turning on. Blue, uh, 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 Bluetooth in our laptop, we saw that everybody had left their phone that way. Everybody's <laughs> phone was discoverable. There was like 12 of them or Wasn't something. Wasn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. But and we so, learned our lesson, however, at that and time. That, yes, and that is the danger. You do not want to leave your Bluetooth devices discoverable. I've never understood why the user interface isn't set up so that it just flips it back off. There, it is it, now, I think, in almost every device. Yes, I've and I'm, I've really seen a change over yeah. the last few years where, you know, you, you manually make it discoverable and then it, it takes responsibility itself for, for flipping it back off because, you know, that's... That's how Paris Hilton loses her her <laughs> phone book and so forth. Oh, Paris has many ways to lose her phone. <laughs> She's discovered every technique possible. Al Murray, Gainesville, Florida, wonders about CompuTrace's low jack for laptop security. We've seen a lot of ads for this. Steve, I just bought and received a Dell notebook. Noticed in the BIOS configuration, it had a CompuTrace option that was not activated. Seeking more information, I did a search and found... It's a product from Absolute Software. They also do the LoJack software. I think they licensed the LoJack name because it's, it's the same idea. LoJack's for a car. Right. I would really like your thoughts on using this product on my netbook since we all know how easy it is to have a laptop or a netbook lost or stolen. Should I use CompuTrace or the LoJack? Are they the same product? By the way, I can't remember when I first bought Spinrite, but it has saved my bacon many, many times. Love your podcast. Thanks, Al. Okay, so um, in general... I think it's a good idea. The I love the idea of this being in the BIOS because that moves it to a place where it's just not prone for deletion or discovery or removal. What it does is it takes advantage of the the increasing size and sophistication of contemporary BIOSes to actually build 
a, a network client into the laptop itself, meaning that when the laptop is on, the without, I mean, in, in an OS independent fashion, I mean, you, you don't even have to have an operating system loaded because it's not using the OS at all. It's just using a, a block of code in the BIOS and the fact that the network adapter, um, whether Wi-Fi or, or wired, is part of the hardware. So the BIOS knows how to talk to that hardware. You don't, it, again, it doesn't need drivers. Drivers are used to interface the operating system to the hardware. But in the BIOS, the BIOS knows what it's got. So, so CompuTrace has licensed to Dell their technology and Dell builds it in as do many laptop or uh, netbook and laptop makers build it in as a feature which is which you can turn on now it's not free the whole deal is you need to subscribe to this um and so i guess the issue of is it worth it should i turn it on which al is asking is a function of your use of your laptop your likelihood of it getting away from you the possibility that it's got confidential data on it, you, the likelihood of recovery, and so forth. What it costs is $40 for a single year or $90 for three years. So what happens is when your laptop is is turned on once a day, because again, it also has access to the clock and calendar, so it knows how often it's being turned on, when it's being turned on, if it's already been turned on that day, and so forth. It won't, it won't do it more than once a day. When it's turned on and hasn't been for 24 hours, the laptop itself, separate from your operating system, is able to use your network adapters and contact CompuTrace. It essentially sort of sends them a ping and identifies itself by serial number. And this is something set up when you activate this feature in the laptop. um, There's an account number and identity and so forth. And so CompuTrace is receiving pings from all the laptops which have subscribed to their service all over the world. Every day, they're receiving these. So if you lose your laptop or your car is broken into and it's stolen or you leave it in the airport, which is where most laptops get lost or misplaced or stolen, um, or you leave it in the seat back. I know, Leo, you've gone through many Kindles Uh, that way. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So if one way or another it gets out of your control um, and it doesn't look like it's going to come back, you, you, the subscriber, contact CompuTrace and say, hi, I'm Al Murray in Gainesville, Florida. Here's my account number. I need you to figure out what we should do. So so you give them your account number and they now wait for your stolen laptop to be used by the bad guys, to be turned on, to be, you know, plugged in, to to be whatever. And this, as soon as that happens, if your laptop can reach the internet, if it's near a, a Wi-Fi or if it's plugged into, you know, the bad guy's hub, it reaches out, pings CompuTrace as it always does. This time, they're primed. CompuTrace is, is able to tell the laptop immediately that it's been stolen. 
So the laptop knows that it's it's in like I've been stolen mode. That, that does a couple things. One thing it does, it increases its communications from once a day to every 15 minutes so that they're able to track it. It also is able to use standard, we've talked about this several times, the amazing geolocation of Wi-Fi to figure out where it's located. So it's able to report its physical location to CompuTrace. And of course, they get the IP address that it's pinging them from. So they have the IP address, they have the 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 Wi-Fi based geolocation data, and CompuTrace is then able to deal with the local to the laptop, local law enforcement authorities, and set about seeing if they if they're able to get it back. Now, the other thing that that Al could ask CompuTrace to do if he is more concerned about his information, depending on what kind of information he's got on the laptop, he can ask CompuTrace to lock down the laptop and or wipe the hard drive. So that could all be done remotely at his desire based on the conditions of how it got lost and how long it's been gone and so forth. So the laptop can lock itself down and refuse to function, simply putting up a notice of some sort saying, I've been stolen, you're bad guys, you're not going to get access to me, sorry. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, for 40 bucks a year, 90 bucks for three years, um, depending upon your use of the laptop, sounds like it might be useful. There's a... Uh program for Macintosh called Undercover that's very similar, but it uses some other techniques. It uses Skyhook to, to locate itself, but it right. also knows all the IP addresses for Apple stores. And since people, <laughs> often, people often bring their you know stolen laptops, I guess, to Apple stores, it immediately goes, oh, I know where I am. Interesting. It sends pictures from the camera of the person who stole your Mac. Ooh, that's a good one, yeah. too. Every eight minutes. <laughs> and then if you can't get it back, it simul- I love this, it simulates hardware failure by making the screen gradually darken to unusable <laughs> and hoping that the thief will then, you know, bring it, toss somewhere. it out. Yeah, toss it out. It also does, you know, iPhones now and iPads have uh, that find my iPhone and all this. And, and I see Android phones do this too with Lookout. They scream if, if they're, they're lost. <laughs> I've been stolen. I've been stolen. Or, or you can find it if you dropped it, you know, you left it in a seat cushion or you left it in a restaurant. You can ah. have it scream. It, it's interesting. I mean, people lose these portable devices so often that I, it's not surprising there there are many solutions now for this um question three from krister jonsson we got a lot of scandinavian listeners in Lixele, sweden wonders about anonymous web surveys hello i've been asked to fill out surveys and questionnaires at work the surveys are supposed to be anonymous but quite often i get a link containing a unique id so that the person who made the survey can see who finished the survey and who hasn't done it yet. I always ask, how can I trust that the survey really is anonymous? And so far, the answers I get are along the lines, yeah, well, yeah, you can have a unique ID. That's so if I know you fill out the survey, but I can't connect that ID to you. Of course, they could have a list with all the IDs, and they know who got what ID, and it wouldn't be too hard for them to store the IDs with the answers. To me, this feels like playing cards with somebody saying, trust me, I don't cheat, while they leave the room to supposedly shuffle the cards. I like that. Is there a way to design a web survey so that respondents can trust the system while at the same time offering those offering the survey and wanting the results can know who has answered 
or not. This actually ties to something the Wall Street Journal has uh, accused Facebook of doing. Or actually, Facebook third-party game uh, and applications of doing. They also send need a unique ID of some kind and often send the Facebook user ID, which can then be scra- used to scrape public information from the page. Uh, ah. Journal considered that a, a privacy violation. You know, it's public. It, it only scrapes the public information. So I don't I don't know if that's as bad as it sounds. A lot of pages do this. It's, this is this is not unusual, right? Well, I, I thought about this question. It's an interesting um, and, problem. Yeah. And the problem is if you if you don't trust the survey taking system. So so it sounds like, for example, this is at work. So so management is saying, okay, all you minions, we uh, we want to know what you really think. And we're going to help you to tell us what you really think by making this anonymous. And the minions are suspicious, of course, saying, well, but if I tell you what I really think and you know it's me and, you know, I tell you that you have bad breath, then, you know, that you might hold it against me when it comes from my next job review or, or whatever. So, so... You can imagine, you, you can see that this sounds like it's an adversary, a potentially adversarial situation where, where management really does probably want to know what people, re- what the employees really think. The employees probably really want to tell management what they really think, but the, the anonymity barrier and, you know, and this lack of trust in the survey system is preventing both sides from getting what they want. So, the only thing I could think of, as I and I mean, and I pondered this for a while, is if first of all, if people could approach a, a computer without having to identify themselves—that is, you know, not log on because obviously then they know who they are. If they if they could like use any computer, or like say they were in, it was in the coffee room or something, so that it was like it was there to be anonymous and. They they fill out the survey and then they receive some sort of a a unique token like write the following thing down these numbers and digits and that's to prove that you filled it out. Okay, now we still have the problem that that is tied to to them to their answers. So the only thing I could think was that I mean and this is annoying but. If everyone really wants anonymity, if management really wants the, the the truth and the employees really want to be able to tell the truth without being identified, is everybody then who says they filled out the the questionnaire writes down these tokens and they all throw them in a hat and scramble them. So so that process disassociates the people with the tokens. Management is able to say, okay, we know everybody who threw the tokens in the hat. So, and and we know that we have the same number of tokens as we have people and all the tokens are valid. So we know that everybody answered the questionnaire. So That's a good idea. We don't know, you know, there has to be some decoupling somehow between, between answering the questionnaire. I mean, if you really you don't, you if you don't, you would right. only know somebody didn't answer. You wouldn't know who. Correct, and that's the problem. Is you and but that's the benefit is so you you would know that someone didn't answer, but you couldn't know who. But if you had 
if if everyone said I answered and they threw their their little tokens in the hat, then you scrambled them up and you saw that the right number of people um, uh, answered them. Yeah, an, a, a, answered them. Then you wouldn't know who was associated with what. You'd only know that yes, you know that everyone. Uh, had taken the questionnaire. I mean, it really is a problem to to create, to disconnect that kind of verification from the questionnaire in a system you don't trust, because that's the problem. Is we're, we're assuming that that this is not an anonymous system. I mean, if the software were designed correctly, absolutely it'd be possible to to give someone a token which is completely disconnected with from from who they are. But that would require that the employees be given the questionnaire, trust the management not to want to try to figure out who they are. I would suspect it's in management's best interest not to know so that they get the truth from the employees. But again, if there isn't that trust, you know, throwing the tokens in a hat and scrambling them up, you know, it says, okay, now I don't have to trust you. We just, you know, we just know that the right number of people did answer the question. You'd get that information if you just look at how many people answered. Right, so yeah, that's, that's not going to get you any, any farther <laughs> than you are really. It's a, it's an interesting question. Somebody in the chat room said, um, "Well, I have the same problem when I'm told this is an anonymous phone survey, but they've got my number. They, there's, it's not really anonymous, right?" So, Christer, there is no answer for you, and if you're going to answer surveys, you're going to have to assume that it's not necessarily anonymous. Well, and, you know, again, web-based is a problem because it's online. Right. If you print the survey out and then, then, it's anonymous. You know, yeah. and then fill it out with your other hand, so, <laughs> you know, even your handwriting is wacky, right. you know, then put all those in a hat and scramble them up, then it's anonymous. Right. Again. Yeah. The, yeah. Web, the problem is the web, and this is, what, this is kind of the response to the Facebook issue is you're not anonymous on the web. All, all websites know who you are. They know your IP address. So you're fundamentally not anonymous. Well, and last week's episode was the Evercookie. Right. So you can so, even get worse. It's hard to shake this stuff yeah. off. Scott in Seattle wonders about the security of his Windows gadgets. Is there any danger, Steve, with Windows desktop gadgets? Those are the things. If you use a Windows Vista or Windows 7, they're the little doohickeys you could put on the screen. I use a clock, a CPU monitor, weather, that kind of thing. I see a ton of them listed on the Microsoft website. You know, some are from Microsoft, but most are not written by real companies like Amazon or Google. They're just, you know, individuals. Is it dangerous to download and use a desktop gadget written by someone you don't know and not by an established company that signs their gadget, Scott in Seattle? Yeah, I'm guilty of that. I download a third party. I download from Microsoft, but I don't know how much vetting is done. and I don't even know how secure the gadget model is. Have you looked into that? Yeah, I have, actually, and it's not. Oh, okay. There we go. Not secure. It's this just it's the same JavaScript, running, right? It, it's JavaScript and XML and CSS. Basically, it's sort of webized gizmos, right? And they're subject to all the same security problems as everything else. Microsoft goes to some some level of effort to to try to educate the authors about checking the buffer bounds, making sure you use a specified character set, you know, UTF-8 for example. I mean, they I mean they they go to some lengths to try to help people write secure gadgets, but you know, we know how well that's going to work. So, um they gadgets could be deliberately malicious or they could be they could unfortunately be flawed. So if a gadget were very popular, for example, some weather gadget, it might be possible to send it bad data 
which causes a buffer overflow in it and would allow someone remote access to your machine. So that, you know, that kind of vulnerability exists in the Windows gadget dex, uh, um, uh, desktop space just as it does in regular applications, unfortunately. You know, we, we're getting more gizmos and... Uh, they're, they're vulnerable. And by extension, in case you're interested on the Macintosh Yahoo widgets or the uh, Macintosh dashboard widgets, they're also JavaScript, CSS, and XML. They're all done the same way. Yeah. So they're exactly the same security issues. They're modern. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I presume, you know, I presume on the Mac side, it's WebKit that renders that gadget. I don't, I know, I presume yep. it's IE that renders the gadgets on the Windows. Yep. Exactly. Jason Crow in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, wonders about an EverCookie workaround. If you listened to the last episode, you know about the EverCookie. Question for you, Steve. If I have an image of my OS partition, you know, like a ghost, and I restore that image on a regular basis, say every three days or four days, does EverCookie have a way of working around the ghost and saving its super cookies? Could EverCookie be storing information, let's say, on, on somewhere not part of the image, on the boot partition or on a D drive? Do you think other tracking schemes could? Thanks, Jason. And I, I guess by extension, Microsoft's Steady State or Pharaonic's Deep Freeze, these are all programs that restore your system to a, a previously known good state uh, automatically. Yes. And, and so here's the problem. We know whatever cookie is doing because it's open source and, and freely available so, and, and clearly documented. So, you know, the, the, um, the author has said, here are all the things I'm doing. And he sort of did it more as a capability demonstration to just to show how sticky these things could be. So it may not be that today it's looking around at other drive letters, other places to squirrel away its data. But gee, that's a handy idea. So, you know, tomorrow it certainly could be. Yeah, it's I just a question of whoever maliciously implements it. Thinking of other ways <laughs> to do yes. it. Yeah. yeah, the idea is when you've got scripting on your system, anything the scripting can do can be done. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. That's all that. there is to say. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. You know. Yeah, it's bad. We've seen viruses that go into BIOS, um, you know, into the uh, CMOS, uh, non-volatile memory of BIOS. We've seen viruses that sit on master boot records. They're, they're always going to try to be somewhere that is not overwritten. Yes, the only thing the only thing I can imagine that would really give a, a, a containment essentially, it would seem to me that that, for example, VMware has that snapshotting feature where you're able to run an image but but snapshot it first and save no changes. If you were careful, to to circumscribe the environment that is not map external drives into that not allow other things to have access you're, you're in, a, in a virtual machine you're always sort of starting with a generic system that is all of the vms from vmware looked looked like the same hardware they looked like you know, pretty much they're identical because the VM brings that characteristic with it. It's it's masking all these details of the of the outside externalized system. So so that's a, a really good way of of preventing tracking. And if you set up that snapshot feature, then nothing that changes in the VM is kept. It's very much as Leo was saying, like steady state. 
Um, and then we, we talked about this before, but I'll remind our listeners, because I mean, there was a lot of concern raised about this, is booting a, a temporary desktop, you know, booting one of the Linux boot CDs that fires the system up and gives you a desktop with, you know, Firefox on it. That'd work. That works. There's no and way that, because it doesn't reference anything in, you know, you'd have to get stuff in RAM. I don't know how you'd do that. Yeah, well, exactly. And so it, it's going to clean out an area. It's going to it's going to load into that. You can surf in there, and when you shut it down again, so long as you don't deliberately penetrate the bounds of that. I mean, there are ways to, to like to map external drives in and things. But if you don't do don't that, do that, yeah, then then you know you you have a an absolutely transient surfing experience, and every time you boot it, it's going to start over just like it did before, and no cookie will be able to hold on to you. No cookie can survive. Um, before we move on to uh, our next question, we've got another wireless keyboard question. Somebody wants to know about IP space deletion. We, you were talking before the show about IPv6, and we are running out. Oh, rapidly. boy. Uh, and uh, also our, well, ever cookie, not so ever question. Before we do that, though, I want to mention our friends at Ford and the and the Ford Sync and just what a great solution that is for anybody uh, who has a, a car but wants to and wants to use all the you know the truth is <laughs> I who was who said this I think it was Walt Mossberg was saying until recently when you get in a car you would travel back in time like thirty years before the internet before connectivity you just you know you you, you know you put your phone aside and you're you, that's it you'd have phone and nothing else. And and Ford really uh, realized that people want access to what's on their smartphones. They want Internet access. They want the ability to play their music back. They want the text messages read to them. They want that, but they don't. But then there's this conflicting issue of safety, and they came up with Ford Sync, and it's such a good solution. I have it in my 2010 Mustang. Uh, there's the new My Ford Touch, which comes in some Ford vehicles now, too, which is Ford Sync Plus. Uh, they just are doing some great stuff. I want you to take a look at a Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury vehicle. Many of them come with Sync Standard. Take a test drive. Try the Sync. Or you can go to Sync My Ride podcast to find out about it. The, the Kind of the bottom line. I started saying this, and I think Ford picked it up because now it's in all of their advertising. I created this one. Keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road. That's the idea. When you're driving, focus on driving. But at the same time, you want to listen to security now, here's what you do. There's a button on the steering wheel. You press that. The Ford Sync fires up, fires a little tone at you, and you say... Audio, bong, sync, bong, play security now, 271. And it starts playing, you know, and it plays off of your iPod or your Zune uh, or your Android phone, uh, your Sansa, your iRiver. It plays off a variety of different devices. If it's stored there in MP3, it scans. The, there's a USB port, so you could plug it in. It scans the device, indexes it. And then you can call for anything that's on the device properly tagged. Of course, you have to have an MP3 tag. But you could call for it by tag, by genre. You could say play next, play previous. You could say stop. You could say pause. You could say play more like that. If you like a song, you're listening to Roger McGuinn. You say, oh, I like that. Play more like that. It'll play more in that genre. Uh, you can call people. You press the button. You say phone. And then you call. You say, uh, I say call Jennifer at home. Boom. I'm connected. You can, if you have an Android phone, not just Android phones, some other phones too, but Android phones in particular, when a text message comes in, you can have it set up so it alerts you and says, would you like me to read this to you? And it reads it to you. 
You even have canned responses you can send back. Not You're not going to be typing out, but you're going to send back canned responses. There's also some great safety stuff like 911 assist. Now, knock on wood, you're never going to need this, but it's so nice to have. And I turn mine on, of course, on my phone. So that if the airbags are deployed, it, it, it first it gives you a chance to cancel. It says, was that a mistake? And you say no, or you say nothing. It then calls 911. The phone knows where you are. Actually, the sync does too. The sync has GPS built into it. So this, the sync sends GPS coordinates to 911, plays a recorded message saying airbags were deployed at this location. Please send emergency vehicles. And then turns the microphone on in your phone, uh, on the sink rather, and the phone your phone is what's connecting you, and you and you can say help me, <laughs> or never mind, I'm fine. I it, I could just go on and on. It is so great. You get true hands free calling, turn by turn directions. I'd even mention that. It even knows your route, so it'll alert you to traffic problems along your route and say don't go that way. Nine one one assist, music search, uh, just fantastic. I want you to try it right now. Go either go to the website syncmyridepodcast.com or even more fun this is an excuse and the Ford dealers are very nice they welcome you they're really, they're really happy to see people stop by so go in and say hey I'd like to test drive what do you want a 2011 Mustang that 5.0 that's what I want the Ford Flex oh that's a beautiful vehicle try the Edge that is their most high tech vehicle that's got the My Ford touch on it and go for a ride and, and 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 ask him to show you the sink. You actually don't even have to go for a ride. Just ask him to show you the sink. Sinkmyridepodcast.com. Thank you, Ford, for bringing the pride back to uh, American cars. I The other day I was talking about my Mustang, and I inadvertently said they were built in Brazil. It's not built in Brazil. Mine's built in Michigan, I'm proud to say, by American workers, and I just love it. Now, back we go to our questions. Number seven, right, or six? Six. Stephen Musumichi or something like that, in New oh, Orleans. You're, you're good with those names. That's, <laughs> well, that's, I, I couldn't you, do better than that. You say that, but who knows? Could be could be pronounced Chardet. I don't know. Musumeche, Musumeche, in New Orleans, wonders, I know how to say that, New Orleans, wonders about wireless keyboard encryption. Steve, I use the Logitech K320 wireless keyboard. They say it's not using, uh, it's not using 8-bit XORs. It's using AES-128. What do you think? That's pretty good. So yes, I uh, I decided there were uh, there were a lot of concern, as I mentioned earlier, raised about you know the whole issue of wireless keyboards. So I did some research, read some white papers and some security evaluations and so forth. And the good news is Logitech got it one hundred percent correct. They did a beautiful job. They, uh, I, I, I sort of smiled when they were talking about how they don't bother encrypting the mouse because all it does is send relative movement. And I thought, wow, why does that sound familiar? That's exactly what we said last week. Um, there's no need to encrypt mice. Uh, keyboards, however, of course, is a different story. Um, and they handle that beautifully. There's non-volatile memory in the keyboard and in what they call their little unifying receiver. This is Logitech's oh, yeah, yeah. new technology. I use that. Yeah, it's a little yes, tiny you, you and I have a lot of those because we love those little the MX yep. mice yep. With, with, the, with the frictionless wheel. I've got them in all my laptops. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a little tiny receiver that just looks like a little bit of a head on top of a USB connector. You stick it in your USB port of your laptop and you just leave it alone um, or your desktop or whatever. And the idea, they call it a unifying receiver because one receiver is used for multiple devices. Uh, uh, up to six can be 
can be paired with a single receiver. Now, it's not Bluetooth, is it? It's some, it's no. some proprietary thing. Yeah, it's 2.4 gigahertz. Oh, interesting. And they make the comment that 2.4 gigahertz has a range of several tens of meters. So encryption of keyboard strokes is very important. Mm-hmm. So at the factory, non-volatile memory in the keyboard and in the unifying receiver are synchronized with the same 128-bit symmetric key, which the AES algorithm uses to encrypt encrypt keystrokes. So if you repair the keyboard, because, for example, you, you might pair it with a different receiver that hasn't seen that keyboard before, the pairing process does exactly the right thing. There are pseudo-random number generators at each end. They are able really? to... Oh, yeah. That's they're, amazing. They're able to do a... To, to, to establish a new key without it ever going over the wire, over the air, um, in the clear, in order to synchronize a new key that neither that they agree upon on the fly, that's written into non-volatile RAM and kept there. That's so, mind-boggling that that little thing can do that. Yes, they they did a beautiful job. Wow, I guess if, if you could put it in a VeriSign card or a PayPal football, you could put or, it in a little dongle there. Yeah, or well, and I'm thinking of of the YubiKey too. That's right, like that's super true. thin and does right. all that same kind of stuff. Right. So yeah, this that's impressive. It's really nice. Very nice. So I haven't looked at anybody else's, but I know that this the unifying receiver technology that Logitech has is doing this. And it does say in the specs, just in the regular top-level specs, 128-bit AES encryption. So that's the way they implemented it. I would imagine anything that Logitech has done, even if it's not the K320 wireless keyboard, that also says that would be using the same technology, which means you can trust it. I am impressed, and, and kudos to Logitech, because yeah. they, they used XORing in some of their earlier stuff. Yep. But uh, they, they've obviously learned their lesson, so you could use that with uh, confidence. Wow. That's amazing. David Eckert in uh, Durham, North Carolina, Eckhart, wonders about IP space depletion. And we ain't talking the shuttle here. He says, uh, subject, 95% used up. He said, according to this article, and he quotes a CNET article, IP version 4 addresses are now all but 5% done. Uh, and they're calling for an orderly move to IPv6. This is, this is something Vince Cerf, the father of the Internet, has been saying for a while. Uh, although he's been saying it for years, and it turned out it wasn't really a cr- crisis until recently. He says, uh, the, our correspondent David says, I still say there hasn't been enough work done on the transition. IP version 4 devices like my iPod Touch simply can't go to an IPv6 website and vice versa. This requires a translator computer. Translator computers are still in the development stage, as can be seen by various articles. We've seen Comcast, in particular, working on this very issue. I also expect cell carriers to participate when those come available as 16 million Class A addresses are simply not enough. Can you talk about this? What do you okay, think? Okay, so um, if you haven't, Leo, click that link and look at the chart. That CNET article has a very nice graph of of where we stand and where we've been since the beginning of 06. Um, one way, okay, we know that, that IPv4 addresses are 32 bits long. 
So, and we know that IP addresses are in the so-called dotted quad format. You know, 192.168.0.1, for example, is one we've all seen for, for private IPs. So the top, that, that first number is is the it identifies a block of IPs where with all where the other three numbers are sort of uh, subsidiary to it. So you know anything starting with a four, for example, uh, level three owns all of the four dot space, and for example, five dot has been unallocated, and as far as I know, it still is. That was what the the clever developer Alex of Hamachi was using right. because no, there were no five dot IPs out on the public internet. It had never been allocated. So to give our listeners a sense for where we are at the beginning of 06, there still remained 62 unallocated what's called a slash eight network, meaning only the top, you know, specifying just the top eight bits of the network address out of a total of 256 of them, which is how many combinations in a single byte, 62, even in 06, were still unallocated. So what, just shy of one quarter of the entire internet, because 64 is one quarter of 256 possibilities. So 62 were unallocated in 2006. One year later, that number had dropped to 49 Mm. in 07. One year later, in 08 to 41. In 09 to 32. At the beginning of 2010, we were at 22. Today, we're at 12. Wow. So that's a yeah. dramatic drop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so things like five dot will not be available for long. In fact, my, my feeling is my summation to sort of sum this up overall for, for, for David and our listeners is I think 2011 is going to be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> interesting and not a good way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, at the rate it's been dropping, we we burned up between 08 and 09, we went from 41 to 32. So that burned up 9. From 09, at the beginning of 09 to 10, to 2010, we went from 32 to 22. So we burned up 10 more. Between 2010 and now... We went from 22 to 12, meaning we burned up another 10 in less than a year. It's accelerating. Yes. We're see, we, it was 9 for the prior year, 10 for the year after, and now we're already at 10 and we're not done with this year, which says, and this is what the predictions are, that before this time, before October, of is through of 2011, we're done. We're out. Our, but it sounds like, I mean, at least from our correspondent, we're not ready. Are we no, not ready? I completely agree. Um, we're we're not yet using IPv6. My, you know, my cable modem has an IPv4 address. When I look in my that's, iPad, and you know well, it is because it's four dotted quads, right? Yes, exactly. Now, and that's that's the difference. IPv6 goes from 32 bits 
to 128 bits. Now, again, we glibly talk about bits, but remember that every single bit doubles the number. So if we just... If we just went from 32 bits to 33 bits, I mean, if, we just added, if we just added one bit, right. that would double the number. I mean, that would, that would last a long time. Well, they didn't just add one bit. You know, they went from 32 bits to 128. They added 96 bits. So, so that's so 96 instead of, doublings. Instead of 192.168.1.1, we're going to see 192.168.1.1.1. Dot just, one, dot one. No, you. It's it's in <laughs> the it eight? new IP. The new IP addresses are insane. <laughs> there is insanely long. Now, what they did was they folded the IPv4 space, as you'd expect, into the IPv6. So, IPv4, what we have now, thirty-two bits, it occupies one little infinitesimal microscopic <laughs> nano size corner of i mean of you know, space, everything yeah. we have now it just dis- it's vanishingly small it disappears in the ipv6 space which is fine except that we're not really using ipv6 yet i mean it's it's the specs are solid the 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 hardware is there for example XP, old XP that I'm still sitting in front of, it has an IPv6 TCP IP stack. You can literally, there's a command you can give to a command prompt that turns it on. And then it works. I mean, yeah. it's there, but it's not turned on by default. And it when I, when I go out with my iPad and look in under network settings, when I'm hooked into some Wi-Fi, I've been given an IPv4 address. So, you know, a, like a public IPv4 address, meaning, you know, some public IP, not 192.168.something or other. So, so what that says is that the world is still actually using IPv4 because... You know, no one wants to do anything until they absolutely have to, which is why. Well, we have to. Which is why <laughs> 2011 what? is going to be so interesting. So I'm looking at an IPv6 address. First of all, it's in hex. Yep. And instead of uh, dotted quads, it's eight dotted octos. Yes. And it's colon, not dotted. So yes. it, so it's it's four hex digits in eight groups of four. So it is. A, I guess it's a quad still. But it's uh, so okay, and uh, and and that's huge. I mean, it's if you just even look at it, it looks huge. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's X. <laughs> people people had a hard time remembering IP addresses. Well, you don't even try oh, you don't. this thing. You can't. Just, no, this looks crazy. like a MAC address times two, basically. So the idea is this IPv6 space is so big, everybody who wants some can have it. The problem <laughs> you is you can have your own Class A address. You can't do anything with it right now. Right. You know, as, well, so are exa- they going to go to university? I mean, there are people who have Class A addresses that aren't using them. Are yes, they going to go to these guys who are ho- band? You know, there's the bandwidth hogs now. There's IP address hogs. Are they going to go to them and say you got to release them? Yes, even even four years ago, 
when I signed up for my, when I moved things away from Vario, because Vario was shutting down their, their T1 business, and I didn't want to move all my stuff to Cogent, and I tried XO for a while, but I kind of got scared off, and I went to level three, just, you know, a big tier one right. provider. I had to fill out a an IP, um, wow, what, what they had a name for like it. A just, I, justification uh, form. Just, yes, it was a yeah. justification. It's like, prove to us why you need 16 IPs. Right. You know, what are you going to do with them? To, you know, make, you know, justify your use of the space. So already they were feeling jealous yeah. of their own space. Right. And um, I know that chunks are still available because Alex, um, uh, Alex down at, at Sunbelt, he has a class C. So he's got a full block of 256 IPs. Um, but, you know, those are becoming hard to get because that's a chunk of space. But as you say, Leo, there are there are old old time universities that I mean, Stanford I think has two class A networks. Or no, Hewlett Packard has HP two. has a ridiculous number of addresses. Yes, because they were in very early, and they said, "Oh well, we'd like a chunk, please." And so they got given a chunk. Well. I'd be very surprised if they're actually needing and using those uh, those IPs. And so, and here's the other thing, Leo. The yes, it's the case that in theory, the original concept of the of the Internet architects, and we're going to be discussing this in detail when we start in on our how the Internet and Networks work series, which will be the next series we do. Um, their original concept was every single endpoint on the net would have its own dedicated IP. And so you could get to any machine from any other with an IP. Well, the fact is the world's changed. People have networks at home that, that these, these gurus back then never imagined. Right. It's true under IPv6 we could return to every single endpoint has its own IP. But there's the no fact, need. Exactly. Because we have routers. Is, yes. Every single endpoint doesn't need its own IP. And so universities, Hewlett-Packard, corporations, I mean, the fact is, I think what's, well, what we're going to see is a scrambling towards NAT routing right. to a much greater degree, the pressure to move to, I mean, ultimately will be on IPv6. But when when the screws get tightened sometime around summer of 2010, um, people are going to have to justify their use of IP space. And they're probably, I don't know if there's a provision for you know recovering IP space from someone who has it. But you know, well, if, they can say, "Look, be a good internet citizen, HP. Exactly. Can you give up ten of your fourteen million IP addresses?" <laughs> Although ten million new addresses aren't going to really solve the problem. See, and that's just it: is that the, the everyone understands ultimately we need to switch, or we really need to be a lot more aggressive about NAT routing. You know, I mean, there are the the, the purists this that they see red. When we talk about NAT routing, they're like, just get it done. Just switch over. The problem is it's not easy. I mean, I've got routers that are running IPv4. And so, 
I mean, it's a it's a huge amount of work to to make this change. I mean, it really it changes the fundamental plumbing of of the internet in a way that it doesn't want to get changed. So we don't have to get new routers, or our internet service providers would have to get new routers. Who has to who has to do this? Our routers right now do not support IPv6, so they need firmware updates. Assuming that they can be updated probably can't i mean i would imagine that they assign a certain you know certain number of registers for the number that's really that kind of thing is hardwired in yes you know, there, thir- there a 32-bit was... number is your ip address that's hardwired in you go to 128-bit that's architecture it it may very well be you know sorry you can no longer use your router you <sighs> need to go get a new router that's a big deal now somebody must be making routers with ipv6 compatibility Oh yes, and I'm and so if and you're buying a new router, you should make sure of that. I that would be a very good thing to check off. Make sure you're not going to be obsoleted when the world actually does move, whenever that is. Oh, it's going to be ugly. <laughs> going to be fun. <laughs> ah, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> yes, I really do think we're going to see NAT happen big time. It's just it's the path of least resistance for for quite and, a while. And is there a robust dynamic DNS solution for people who want to run their own servers but don't have dedicated IP addresses? Uh, I mean, d- dynamic DNS works, and that really is the that's the argument that is a good argument against NAT is that is that NAT works as long as all you have is clients behind the NAT router. Servers want their own address. Servers need a way. You need a way of, from outside, uniquely accessing a machine behind the the, the, the NAT. And and port mapping and things are kind of a kludge. They're, they're, they're just, they're, they're bad. Ken, did the uh, new switch we just got, does that support? <laughs> uh, anything new, I would hope. Of course, there's, you know, these, these, these Linksys routers have become a commodity. Yeah. You know, these cheap, you know, $30, $40 home routers, they're a commodity. I, I, I wonder if they, you know, they're cranking them out at, you know, a rapid clip. I do know that looking at the UI of mine, there's no sign of IPv6 support. None. And Alexandre Garcia in Portugal with our last question of the day. He says, maybe the ever cookies not so ever cookie. Not so ever. Hi there, Stephen Lee. I've been listening to Security Now since episode one. I want to thank you for all your efforts in uh, explaining so well the problems with security in the computer world. Regarding your last topic, the ever cookie, I just want to remind you that Sandboxy is perfect for people concerned with this kind of menace. I visited the site under a sandboxed instance of IE and let it set the ever cookie. This is Sammy's site, sammy.pl. Then I've closed the browser and run it again under Sandboxy. Sure enough, the site was able to set the EverCookie on my system, of course, inside the Sandbox. Then I've just flushed the Sandbox, visited the site again using the same IP address. The EverCookie site was no longer able to track me at all, so it worked. Sandboxy was able to prevent the EverCookie, that the EverCookie could write into my real system anywhere. And once again, I was happy to be browsing under Sandboxy. Of course... If that ever cookie were to store at a server side my IP, they could have regenerated the cookies. But at least they weren't able to create permanent changes on my computer. Sandboxy blocked them. Keep up with the good work, Alexandre in Portugal. Yeah, I wanted to just add that Sandboxy, which we have done a, a podcast on in the past, and uh, I'm very impressed with. I thought it was a nice data point 
that, that we had, which is the Ever Cookie does not currently penetrate the sandbox. And given what I've seen, it's probably up there. Not quite as robust as a full heavyweight VM, but so much more convenient because it's not a full heavyweight VM. And remember, a VM requires that you give it a chunk of RAM to run another instance of your operating system from. So it doesn't come at, at zero expense, whereas Sandboxy is way more economical. And, you know, I mean, it just sort of automatically sandboxes your browser. So Sandboxy is a great solution. And when you flush the sandbox, as Alexandri showed, the Evercookie is lost. So that's great news. Yay. Happy news. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Steve Gibson uh, is at grc.com. That's where you should go to uh, get, of course, Spinrite, the best hard drive maintenance, the must-have hard drive maintenance utility and recovery utility, grc.com. Somebody asked if it works with the, what are these, there's these new 8-bit uh, eight, eight, uh, sectors or something. What, what is he? What oh, he the 4,096-byte sectors. Yeah. Yes, it does. Because you use anything that BIOS works with. You'll work with, right? So. Yeah, and, and those drives do a great job of of looking like existing drives. Right. So yeah. you know, all existing software is compatible with them. The idea was that that drives were had sectors divided up into five hundred and twelve bytes, four four thousand ninety six bits per sector, with 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 individual sector header information interleaved with every sector. And the manufacturers realized, wait a minute, we're wasting a lot of space with overhead here. We can cut down the per sector overhead by making jumbo sectors. And so that's just what they did. They're 4,096 byte sectors instead of 4,096 bit sectors. So many fewer physical sectors, but they simulate this the same 512 byte sort of subsectors just by dividing them b dividing the physical sectors up into smaller pieces so yes we're completely compatible yay yay and then you were saying that your most popular program now at grc.com securable is securable that's interesting that tells you how secure your hardware is well it it i designed it cuz it tells you how securable your secure hardware is your that is what features your hardware have. But the world realized, hey, it's a simple, fast way of knowing if I've got a 64-bit capable system. Right. For like, you know, Vista 64 and so right. forth. Or, right. or Win 7 64. I put Win 7 64 on my Mac Pro. Runs, runs beautifully. Yeah. Although, I think I'm, I'm right in saying this. I think Sandboxy will not work with 64-bit. Yeah, I remember that was the case last time we talked about it. Yes. check. <laughs> Sometimes you move ahead too fast. So get Securable. That's free. Uh, shields up. All sorts of great stuff. Free at grc.com. And you can get the show there, too. grc.com slash security now. Uh, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired. Transcripts for those who like to read along. Uh, of course, the full show notes. We also have them at twit.tv slash sn. And I always put the show notes on the wiki. I should mention that wiki.twit.tv. Uh, most of our shows either have show notes where our hosts put them there or our volunteers. We have a lot of volunteers working on that wiki. It's a media wiki, just like Wikipedia. And so a lot of people know how to do that, and they keep that up to date. And that's a really great resource if you want more information as well. Wiki.twit.tv. Uh, let's see, what else? If you want to watch us live, we do this show live normally. And we're doing it on Tuesday because tomorrow's a big announcement for Apple. But we do normally record Wednesday, the day before the show comes out. Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC. You can watch that live.twit.tv. Chat with us at irc.twit.tv. 
Uh, it's kind of fun to do it live. But, of course, if you can't make the live broadcast, you can always download audio and video at twit.tv slash SN. And I would just subscribe. That way you always have it. Steve, uh, oh, next week, do you know what you're going to talk about? Or is this a surprise week? Next week, we're finally going to talk about benchmarking DNS. Benchmark. How, how to know how fast your DNS servers are. It's been my sort of uh, project for, boy, like a year and a half. And uh, I'm finally ready to take the uh, covers off and Yay. show everybody what That's I've exciting. got. Yeah, because you yeah. wrote a, a DNS, bench, DNS benchmark program. and The a- DNS benchmark. <laughs> D- DNS. The, the DNS benchmark program. Um, good. That'll be fun. That's next week. If you have questions for Steve, we do that every uh, odd episode now. It's back to odd, right? I can't even tell. We're odd today, aren't we? Oh, we're definitely odd. <laughs> so go to grc.com slash feedback to leave questions for Steve. We'll get to as many as we can. Um, and I think that's all I need to say, but uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Bye, Steve. Security now.